We have a new show at Turpentine that's been in the works for a long time, Company Breakdowns. We dive into S1s and Series B and Beyond companies, interviewing founders and investors to break down the companies. First episode is on Rubrik, which IPO'd this week. Upcoming episodes cover Reddit, Databricks, and more. Subscribe at the link in the description or search for Company Breakdowns on YouTube or in the podcast platform of your choice. Welcome to Live Players, where political scientists and strategists Sam Oberia and I discuss the key individuals with the power to alter our current society. Every week, we provide analysis of the news and case studies of live players as well as key institutions and technologies that make up the global power landscape. Let's dive in. Samo, I, I know you wanted to talk about DARPA this week. What uh, what got you so interested in, in DARPA? I mean, besides being the uh, best-known R&D government agency in the world, I think what's very interesting about DARPA is its cost-effectiveness. Now, of course, when we're talking about cost-effectiveness, uh, you know, you have to consider that this is the Department of Defense. A billion dollars here, a billion dollars there. Soon you're talking about real money, right? Like uh, for the fiscal year of 2023, uh, DARPA's budget was just $4.1 billion, which makes for half a percent of the Defense Department's $773 billion. Now, possibly you could have gotten some of the same technologies um, out of DARPA through some other institutional means. But I do think that in the United States context especially, uh, the defense justification for R&D funding in these, you know, sometimes publicly um, publicized and publicly accessible challenges, right, like the self-driving car challenges of the early 2010s and 2000s, uh, I think DARPA stimulates much more than just the development of America's next generation of weapons. They stimulate often technology that gets commercialized. And arguably, the DoD used to be much better at, you know, declassifying technologies and allowing its contractors to eventually, you know, implement them in other sectors of the economy. There's a real gap in who exactly should take on the cost of developing technology that isn't yet ready for prime time, right? Technology that is not yet commercializable. Um, sometimes, you know, large uh, corporate bodies uh, working for defense will take up these costs, right? This uh, $4 billion a year that I mentioned, right? Like you could conceive Lockheed Martin having uh, a budget to develop these products and these technologies and then products and eventually sort of, you know, try to lobby the government into buying them. Uh, but I think institutionally, it's much more efficient to have a relatively lean government agency actually go ahead and, and do this and just develop the technology for its own sake. Something that's very interesting in the world of tech is that as soon as someone has demonstrated the feasibility of something, lots and lots of people go and reverse engineer it, uh, be it create a, you know, generic variant of a patented drug, uh, recreate a mathematical proof, um, you know, train large language models. It almost doesn't matter what. As soon as you demonstrate um, the viability, um, others will re-engineer these advances. So I think ultimately DARPA does a great service to the economy 
And just to give like a partial list of what they worked on, it's sort of like stealth aircraft, precision guided munitions, drones, uh, self-driving, uh, which now is, of course, hitting our roads as we speak. Um, but for example, also they had a role to play in the development of the graphic user interface and ARPANET, which was the predecessor of the modern internet. Talk about the evolution of uh, of DARPA and and what it uh, portends or or says about sort of the evolution of uh, government effectiveness more more broadly. Well, you know, DARPA perhaps was not that unique insofar as government agencies uh, went, or at least as far as the defense sector went uh, a few decades ago, right? The R&D departments of 1940s, uh, of 1940s defense establishment were very different from the ones in the 70s, let alone the ones in the 2000s. What's exceptional sort of about DARPA is that it has remained relatively lean. Um, basically, in the 1990s, you know, there was um, this realization that warfare was about to change and no one really knew which direction warfare would go in. Uh, the Pentagon had its guesses and they pushed several honestly contradictory concepts. Um, everything from this repurposing of stealth, where of course originally uh, stealth bombers were supposed to be a better way to deploy uh, strategic arms, among other things, right? A stealth bomber might actually be a better delivery vehicle uh, for nuclear weapons than a ICBM that can be tracked. Um, and that's, you know, that was a rather scary prospect in the 1980s. Then in the 1990s, you know, it uh, turns out that even Serbian anti-aircraft equipment based on 1970s Soviet technology could see the in invisible stealth, stealth fighters and shoot them down. Um, there were all sorts of concepts there. And I think because of that, because of that, they correctly bet on information technology. The kind of the end of the Cold War made it sort of obvious that there would be something in the domain of information processing that would end up being very important for warfare. Now, w let's, let's say a little bit about DARPA in this regard. Um, I think that, uh, you know, the, the budget that it has had allocated for the last 20 years has been fairly steady. Um, you know, it's share of the research, develop, test, and evaluation budget has dropped, however, from 6.4% in 1996 to 3.3% a in 2021. Um, you know, funding that they do have is kind of split between four categories, which is basic research, applied research, advanced technology development, and management support. Now, the ratio of spending um, on each category has remained the same since 1996. And basic research has increased a little bit at the expense of advanced technology development, which probably is to fill, uh, you know, a key gap in the, um, a key gap in the usual defense funding practices. I think that the interesting thing about it is that the budget has remained steady for the most part. The categories are relatively fixed. The personnel has not expanded. DARPA's personnel count is 220 people, or at least it was in 2022. 
that's just enough for everyone to still know everyone's names, which I think is a good metric, right? Um, if you imagine what would be politically most advantageous and what happened in sort of the other branches of the U.S. defense sector was that everyone, of course, wants to hire more people to work for, for them, especially if you're spending someone else's money. So the natural um, progression of a bureaucracy is that of a literal pyramid scheme, right? Is both a pyramid scheme in the sense that a larger staff almost always justifies a greater budget and a larger staff is almost always politically more powerful than a smaller staff. And it's also a pyramid scheme in that a lot of government power has always worked this way, right? Government power has always had a foundation in patronage. The DOD is the world's most successful fundraiser, raising trillions of dollars from the U.S. government, um, of course, and the American taxpayer. Um, they have grown immensely over the last few decades. So it is telling that the rare functional institution in this apparatus that is developing weapons, but also technology more broadly, remains about the same size as about the same number of people and has very empowered uh, project managers. Now, one of the key things about the Pentagon in general is that it has become infamously bureaucratic. This was already lampooned in the 1970s, and I'm sure it had struggled already in the 60s. But because of this process of ever-expanding um, basically ever expanding staff, ever expanding patronage networks, and of course, sort of everyone wanting to have their fingers in all the pies where whatever project you have, you will try to argue that it's relevant for everything else. I think over time, this together with a sort of disconnect of which direction war fighting is going, I think that caused a situation where people don't really have authority to fund what they think it makes sense to fund. Rather, they are obliged to fund what everyone else thinks is a good idea to fund. So the limited terms of the program managers at DARPA also means that everyone knows they have a limited window in which to make use of their budget, right? So with 220 people, with a few billion dollars to play around with, with an institution that doesn't really owe anyone that much, um, and with a limited tenure where you know you have just a limited window in which you can spend this money on research projects, you might as well do something great with it. Uh, if this was for, you know, forever, if this was your permanent post in the U.S. government, the result would be that you would probably spend it on building a small bureaucratic empire of some kind. So this is a great example of the effectiveness of, well, basically term limits. Now, the initial funding of a DARPA project can vary, but these are generally substantial projects. They're over a million dollars each. Much of this money goes towards smaller contracts that are designed to solidify um, that an idea is, isn't impossible, right? So it's first demonstrating viability. And, you know, some of these investments can be as low as $50,000, which means that you can truly match uh, the funding to the size of the idea that you're supposed to be backing and tailor the appropriate amount of funding 
for whatever project or whatever technology you have in mind. Overfunding can be as deadly to the development of a new technology as underfunding. Basically, you want to, among other things, encourage a situation where you're not producing a patronage network. So this means that sort of a reoccurring budget is actually worse than these one-off funding budgets and that there is a clear standard of has the technology's uh, viability been demonstrated or not. So in that sense, I think DARPA is subsidizing so much of the rest of the economy um, because these demonstrations of viability you know, people take note of them and both in the private sector and in the larger, less cost-efficient defense contracts that follow. The program managers are generally not obliged to go through any type of peer review. They do rely on uh, their informal networks of technical experts to determine the viability of their programs. They're also able to bring on contractors from outside of DARPA to assist in project management. While these contractors are subordinate to the project, uh, to the program manager, there's sufficient, sufficient institutional trust in DARPA to allow them autonomy and even the ability to liaise between different programs. So at the end of the day, uh, the DARPA um, pro project managers, the program managers, basically can uh, fix various communication gaps that naturally exist in this like sprawling behemoth that is uh, the development of advanced weapons technology in the U.S. Fascinating. It, it's so fascinating to think about why DARPA didn't expand. It's almost, it, it seems, uh, you know, possible that DARPA would have had the same, um, sort of problems that have uh, believed, uh, you know, other sort of government institutions, um, say more about the, uh, why that, that was the sort of the canary in the, the coal mine, so to speak. And what other, what lessons, what other lessons, uh, you know, term limits, you mentioned one, can we, can we draw from that in terms of, uh, making, you know, other government organizations, uh, you know, as effective? Well, I think the term limits, uh, are one of the absolutely critical components of this. We're used to thinking about term limits for elected officials. Well, what about for hired officials? If I'm playful with my words, right? We hire, uh, non-elected government workers all the time. Perhaps some of those positions should be rotated as well, not out of political necessity, but on schedules that fit whatever it is that's uh, necessary to do in, in a certain segment of government. Um, I think that, you know, these positions are, you know, government positions tend to also not be very well paid. Some of these program managers are paid somewhere around $90,000 a year, which is much less than comparable talent can afford in the private sector. So I think if you go into DARPA, part of what you're doing is uh, you're you're almost forgoing kind of personal uh, financial reward. You just sort of want to play around with the freedom to advance technology. And that's kind of interesting, right? That That's not necessarily something that scales. And it's very different from the way that, say, venture capitalists might advance technology or the way academics might advance technology, right? The incentives are very different there. So I think that it being kind of part of a tour of duty and the reputation of excellence is almost self-fulfilling 
right? If someone had worked at DARPA and now they work in the private sector, I don't know about you, but I almost always consider that a positive sign of the person's competence. It's an alternative credential to say something else like um, an MIT degree or having been an early uh, engineer at, say, Google or something like this. So even if they then go out of, you know, developing stealth bombers or robotics or whatever, and they go into software, that still says something. So it is a rare part of the U.S. government where the technical prestige is sufficient to still motivate talented people to go there, despite there being relatively low compensation. I think that, you know, the, the other aspect of this is that the program might, the program managers might still eventually uh, be lower quality. I do think that there are ways in which DARPA is politically precarious, right? Basically, since 1972, um, there have been growing restrictions on DARPA's priorities that have perhaps blunted its capacity to produce anything as transformative as the internet or the personal computer, right? The long-term risk for DARPA is that political and military leaders outside the agency will just fail to understand why it works at all. Now, they might believe in DARPA's effectiveness, but they do so without grasping what underpins it. And as a result, they attempt to shape the priorities of DARPA towards their own priorities. And, you know, they might have a worse grasp of which, which technologies are promising. And of course, their own priorities are already sort of baked into this uh, patronage structure. Now, I referred to it several times, but consider, does NASA really have to build uh, something in every single U.S. state? Right? NASA manufactures components in all U.S. states. Why? Well, because you need an argument for why your budget shouldn't be shrank, right? And you need to talk to a representative from, from that state. Um, the U.S. military has basically similar stakeholder mechanisms. Uh, you know, you are locked into developing technology for aircraft carriers. Whether or not aircraft carriers are still a sensible technology, a military technology to continue developing. You're locked into uh, human piloted fighters, whether you want to be or not. I think we're probably going to have human piloted fighters for the remainder of the 21st century, unless there's a major war fought. That's what it would take, I think, to uh, have the Air Force stop developing new cutting edge planes like that. Um, and until it does, well, pilots need jobs. The <laughs> people making decisions in the Air Force are, are going to actually keep those pilots employed, whether or not they're militarily necessary. And, you know, th this, this sort of stuff is perhaps we're looking with DARPA at sort of, you know, the kind of last tree standing in the forest where you're sort of wondering, well, why is this, what is special about this particular tree? Why hasn't blight consumed it? And maybe it was just lucky. It was a relatively small agency decades ago, had a relatively narrow mission, had uh, term limits. It was respected enough and over time became more and more respected that people were proud of it. So the rest of the Defense Department, whenever they talk about advanced military technology, 
they have basically two arguments. The, one of the arguments is the cool stuff DARPA is doing. And the other argument is, you know, inside this black box that you are legally not allowed to look at, I have revolutionary technologies. And, uh, you know, you should give me money to have twice as many black boxes that you can't look into. And I promise all of those boxes contain revolutionary technology too. So these two arguments, I honestly find the DARPA one more compelling. So even if you don't work at DARPA, it is enabling your uh, budget, your R&D budget to not be cut. You mentioned people are incentivized to grow their budgets. To, that, that's how they get more money is growing their team. What could change those incentives? Having like, like, like there's all sorts of mechanisms we could use here, right? The private sector answer used to just be basically cost effectiveness. The problem is, you know, cost effectiveness because you're driven by the profit motive. The problem with that is that if your customer is the government, your budget last year and how much you charged for something last year anchors how much uh, you're going to get next year, right? So if there's a single customer, um, you're in a pretty bad position and you're always incentivized to inflate costs. I think there is no escaping the aspect of government, which is the ability to do things that perhaps are, are, are sort of not allowed or not enabled elsewhere. One of the interesting things to me always is that, you know, for example, in the U.S. Air Force, you're legally allowed to use uh, IQ tests to hire people for various positions, right? It's an exception in hiring practices. There are all sorts of other exceptions, like exceptions from environmental regulations, exceptions from like rules about how to govern information in the intelligence world, et cetera, et cetera. There is some motive to do interesting and unique things that really drives people to outperform. And when the U.S. government as a whole seemed like something where you could achieve those things, and not only that, like, you know, it was, it was prestigious to achieve those things. Then there would be rewards for a job well done, at least reputationally, if not financially. And, you know, people, people will sometimes accomplish things relatively cost effectively. Now, once that is accomplished, whatever the task you set to do, uh, be it building a bridge or developing a stealth bomber or, and so on, um, if you have to, if, you cannot move to a really different job in government very easily. You are incentivized to propose a second bridge or a second stealth bomber, whether or not they're needed and at twice the cost. So the answer is that project orientation should be very important. People should be looking at what has a certain civil servant done, not how long they've worked where or what their title is. We should have personal responsibility and reputation tracking for success on these projects. And people should be shuffled between very different kinds of projects within the government. It should be standard and allowed to do so. Now, if you imagine that, you might imagine someone that successfully completes a bridge project and then is reassigned with a significant budget, maybe $50 million, to find improvements for a stealth bomber. That's not how the U.S. government works today. Barely any government works that way. At its best, the British government has some small elements of this within its civil service, right? At its best, the Singaporean government has some elements of this. 
And I think this is honestly how the U.S. government used to function in the 1940s and 50s, as it was still a new bureaucratic entity. So I think that personal incentives can overcome bureaucratic incentives if we allow some individuals in government to be with term limits empowered to carry out projects. Hey, everybody. Eric here with a word from our sponsors. Over 100 startups launched today. Do you know who they are? If you're not seeing interesting startups, none of your downstream processes matter. How you source deals at the earliest stages could be your most consequential investment. Harmonic is the most complete startup database, finding new companies as soon as they incorporate and tracking them through IPO. You can create a search tailored to your investment thesis. In one search, filter over company data, including venture stage, industry, and geography founders and operators' backgrounds, and traction metrics like headcount changes, social media audience, and web traffic growth. Importantly, Harmonic instantly surfaces warm connections to help you connect with founders. The results are delivered on autopilot, wherever you most need them, over Slack, email, or via API, directly into your CRM, integrating seamlessly into your software stack. Learn why Craft, Bedrock, NEA, and hundreds more. Trust Harmonic's data by visiting harmonic.ai or use the link in the description. Make sure you mention our podcast, Turpentine VC, during your demo. You alluded to the fact earlier that um, governments can't fire their employees easily. Um, you know, Elon can come into Twitter or X and fire 80% of employees, you know, within the first year. But Biden or Trump can't exactly do that. I don't, I don't think people appreciate the limits of actual authority um, that the president has. What is the right mental model of thinking about, you know, where the president, the power of presidents start and stop? Like, how many people could they fire? H how do these people get fired? Can they get fired? Talk about that. I think by default, the US president can fire just a few thousand people, right? Uh, and can only appoint a few thousand people. The number of appointed positions is very limited. Uh, Congress has over time passed all sorts of laws, from previous, um, you know, previous political battles, not least of which were the battles with the Nixon administration to limit uh, the, you know, so-called, uh, you know, theory of the unitary executive and so on. There have also been legal challenges coming through the court system. So I do think that in some other countries around the world, we see interesting experiments, right? Millais at least has the rhetoric in Argentina of maybe he'll do the Elon thing and fire 80 to 90% of employees. Though I think he will be less inclined um, because of a, you know, strong commitment to anarcho-capitalism to then hire, you know, a much smaller team to do the same job. He's more like doing the classic thing where you say, okay, the state shouldn't handle this. Some other aspect of society should handle this. I think for a U.S. president, it's a slog. And perhaps one possible method of shrinking government and making it actually efficient and lean is that you come in and you create a completely new body that has a competing mandate, but a clear legal right to do the task of a large bloated and inefficient body. And then over time, you transfer more and more budget to the smaller one. There's a political cost here. So the political cost has to be in some way compensated with a political benefit. Usually this means that whenever you create something new, you staff it with your political loyalists. 
but I think there is a narrow space for achievement-based political capital. I think people do care ultimately to a great degree what is done or is not done. And I think if a politician could take credit for creating a new organization within the U.S. government that solved a key problem in society and pointed out how now that we have this, you know, new agency, we don't need old agency. I'm here to cut old agency. I think that's a, that's a message that would work much better even beyond, say, an anarcho-capitalist constituency, especially if uh, the old agency, whatever it was, was already staffed by the political enemies, right? There's something very zero-sum always about a political competition for power. Meanwhile, the world of what we can achieve, what we can do, uh, that's not zero-sum. So it's always an art to make it so that what is positive sum ends up being politically useful as well. Is it your belief that we could shrink government by 90% and it would work as well or better? I think that we actually have decent evidence of this in all sorts of statistics, right? When you compare, say, in an international setting, the number of bureaucrats per capita in, say, Estonia versus Belgium, you realize that just because that small country uh, underwent a digital transition in the 1990s when they had fired former Russian communist officials and were for the first time hiring people into new bureaucracies, they produced an administrative system that is as efficient or more efficient than Belgium. So let's say Belgium versus Estonia demonstrates 50% gains on uh, this kind of improvement, right? We can make government 50% smaller. I think that we have come to view job creation as an end in itself. And I think this is destructive. It is destructive, not only in government, right? Because government jobs tend to be fairly well protected and government workers tend to be, you know, well organized tend to want to make themselves in mass uh, hard to fire. It even means that when we're thinking about the private economy, we are subsidizing and favoring companies that create jobs as if jobs were an end in themselves, politically rewarding large, inefficient companies. I think that Google has, through its existence, been rewarded for having more workers living in California rather than punished. Every single worker that they have in California is both a taxpayer and bragging rights. And in the political world, uh, the incentives are so much worse than they are even for uh, large companies. So I would say that privatization has limited utility in itself because, again, uh, there are some goods, such as the development of new technology, for which, you know, it's either, you know, very small philanthropy or it's some entity like the government that's the main customer. And as soon as you have this like private partnership of a single or maybe two companies with the government, that becomes just as bloated, right? So I want to emphasize here, I don't think just narrow privatization solves everything, but I do think you could privatize 20 or 30% of government. And I do think that the function of the rest of it could be done much more efficiently. Uh, so I think we could have a higher quality U.S. civil service. In fact, here's an idea. 
I would be in favor of firing half of all government employees and doubling the salary of the remaining government employees. That wouldn't be a cheaper government, but would be a more efficient government. Yeah. Or even redistributing half of the money to poor people or something or, or to, to citizens just straight in their pockets. Well, sh- sh- sure, sure. But, but Eric, let's be, let's be real. Poor citizens are politically much less powerful or middle class citizens are much less powerful than the government officials. Can you just imagine the vicious office politics fights inside of the Pentagon? If people here, you know, we're firing half of you, but the rest of you get a pay raise. Your salary's doubled. How fast would they be to uh, to show flaws or incompetence or corruption or crime or collusion by their former colleagues? Wow. It'll be it'll be it'll be a battle royale. I mean, maybe that's an idea. You can have a battle royale uh, where uh, you know every every week you select two hundred government officials to argue who it's should be fired. Job. And the winner gets the winner gets all the winner gets all <laughs> exactly. Which uh, which twenty to thirty percent should be privatized and and why? What should be private versus made public? Well, that's a very it's a tricky question. It's one that I would answer partially through empirical thinking and partially through like uh, a deep reevaluation of like um, just our understanding of how society works. I want to emphasize that it's really difficult to figure out what would work. Many things that sound nice in practice don't seem to work out very well uh, in the world. I, I honestly believe that I would be much more interested in, for example, reducing the scope and powers of the FDA in terms of ensuring uh, food and drug safety and say in exchange using some of that budget to fund new developments right? In a very similar way to DARPA, right? Why couldn't we have a medical DARPA? People talk about a Manhattan project to cure cancer. Well, who's your Oppenheimer? And how weird would a biological, uh, you know, biological science Oppenheimer be? It would be a pretty weird guy. It'd be hard to argue that this uh, wacky person with their unusual ideas of cellular biology should receive, I don't know, like 2% of US GDP. Now, of course, the FDA has nowhere there that budget, but perhaps instead of regulation, more of the government should be engaged in creation. Because I think if you give people several options of which some are better, uh, most people voluntarily choose the better options, right? So the cleaner technology, like if you have two technologies and they're about the same, you're going to pick the less polluting one just because it sounds better, just because you feel better about it personally. So I think maybe government should be actually in the business of creating more options like that rather than uh, being just a control system on existing options. So number one, like most most of those should be shrunk, most of the regulatory mechanisms. And the second one is, I I really think that the Defense Department, you know, it's, it's the case that the U.S. military is still quite dominant and it's betting on technology, but it could be betting on technology much more efficiently. I think that there are just a number of Cold War era military hypotheses that are not true. In fact, the war in Ukraine has already disproved some important hypotheses, right? How many tanks does the U.S. military need? 
versus how many artillery shells or how many drones. So I think that there's a whole bunch of programs that basically should be retired in that budget. I think with regard to subsidizing basically medicine, I think we should be very careful. I think consumers should receive basically money that they spend however they wish. And we should not have this overly complex compliance mechanism set in. Like I think that, you know, the big body of public health policy actually has very few cases where it's very useful. So the, those were some examples, right? Those are some examples where I, I really do think that uh, those budgets could be shrank and it would be politically viable. Those are good, good examples. L- let's just zoom out and talk about the budget more broadly. It's my understanding that two-thirds of the government budget is healthcare, uh, social security, and defense. And so there's no reforming uh, you know, government budget significant, you know, 90% without drastically reducing those three, like even things like education, I believe, or something like three per- 3%. And so how do you think about h- how the government spends its money uh, currently or in terms of, or give more context on the budget as you see it, as you understand it today? And if we could wave a wall within maybe those three buckets, how could we reduce those and still get, uh, you know, similar quality? Well, I honestly, you know, healthcare is about 21%. I honestly would reduce it to 10%. I would reduce it to 10%, radically deregulate and give uh, every U.S. citizen, you know, basically a medical check that they can spend however they want, right? I would be open to the people choosing to spend it on acupuncture, people spending it on homeopathy, people spending it on plastic surgery. They could spend it on anything they want because then consumer choice would work. You know, we've had fab at my LA friends, um, you know, uh, they talk about the wonderful things plastic surgery can do these days. You know, I've never had a procedure. I don't know, you know, what to think of that necessarily, but the costs are not ballooning there quite as much as they are for cancer. And, you know, let's be honest, if as a society, we wanted to like, you know, do good and wanted to kind of stop zero sum races. Shouldn't the plastic surgery be getting much more expensive and the cancer treatments getting much cheaper? It's like, it's kind of like a positional good, right? The main value of being beautiful is that you're the most beautiful. So even if the stuff works, which is sometimes dubious, I do think we should try to give the consumer choice. Um, we should give consumer choice, um, more, more freedom to actually pick the kind of medical procedures people want for the reasons that they want, right? And the reason for this partially is that, you know, the placebo effect is so strong and our medical knowledge is so weak that I bet on net we would actually see better health outcomes at about the same amount of money spent by the government. So shrink it, you know, shrink it by half, um, and basically let, uh, let people of all classes have an equal share. Like everyone could get, I don't know, $50,000 a year or $20,000 a year to spend on their medical expenses. These are already truly astounding numbers. Like the whole medical bureaucracy, a lot of it semi privatized in this extremely dysfunctional way is so big already that we're, we, we really are talking about such huge numbers per citizen. Um, I think, you know, Education is trickier because education is secretly daycare. 
The reality is the modern economy doesn't know what to do with children and doesn't even know what to do with young adults. So we put them in school and we pretend that they're learning. And then we have prison labor to, uh, you know, keep them busy and maybe they learn something on the side. So yeah, we can, I'm being provocative here, Eric, but no, I hear you. I mean, I, that, it felt like prison to me when I was in high school. I was like, what am I doing? I, I mean, exactly. Right. You know, it's telling how much, again, how much younger people used to be before they were allowed to contribute to society and how far self-education can actually go among the most talented. And when it comes again to having the freedom to research or do great things like, you know, wouldn't it be much better if say the U S government cut the education budget down by $5 billion, let's say, and set aside a billion dollars of it to be metered out by, let's say, 200 people, where each of them gets to pick an 18-year-old that is not a relative. So I would put that constraint in. You can't give it to your kids. Every one of those 220 or 200 government officials with that billion-dollar-a-year budget that still produced the $4 billion savings, if they could each give a four-year grant to someone and be like, you have temporary tenure. You've shown to be excellent, talented, you know, you, you aced whatever testing program we had. Here's your budget. Knock yourself out for the first five years uh, of your working adult life. You get to do whatever you want scientifically. Can you imagine it? It would be a government funded Teal Fellowship. I mean, maybe, you know, maybe they should hire, hire Teal even to do it. I bet he'd be happy to do it. If it wasn't his money, isn't that better? Yeah. <laughs> right. So, uh, again, this, this sort of creative thinking is busting people out of these traps where we needed to house children as parents went to the factory, parents left the factory and they're now in the office and we need to house children even more now. And not only is it a gerontocratic society where promotion opportunities are rare, more and more we're engaged in the zero sum race where, you know, the main value of going to Harvard is sort of demonstrating that you made it to Harvard and most of the other kids of your generation didn't, right? Like that, that positional good aspect together with this, well, the parents are spending more and more of their time working. They're not you know, spending time with their children. We actually don't want parents spending time with their children because then we can, you know, maybe politically also influence the children to have a certain worldview, right? Politically, that formula has become dominant nearly everywhere in the world. You know, it's good for the stability of the Chinese Communist Party that most young Chinese students spend all of their energies prepping to get into the right universities. That's good. What would they be doing otherwise? They might be up to no good, but it's also good for the stability of the U.S. system, right? So we we have definitely locked up youth rather than strengthened youth. And I'm not necessarily even proposing being, uh, you know, throwing them into the economy because it's quite plausible the economy actually has less use for them than it did 100 years ago or 50 years ago. Technology, you know, we don't need chimney sweeper, sweeper boys. And maybe we don't need interns to get us coffee anymore and retype our papers because we just press, we just press copy. We press the copy button. No need to retype a paper if you can do that. Right. Um, the automation of office work from 1940 
to 2020 explains a lot about the changes in white collar culture. It's part of what has made it less hierarchical in a way, right? There used to be these like menial, almost craftsman-like white collar tasks. So if we go through further in the budget, I already argued that we could get defense much more cost effectively. Partial privatization there, I would be in favor of new companies uh, such as Palantir and, uh, you know, of course, Anduril, yes. But I would also be in favor of explicitly carving out um, money for new companies for the sake of new companies. It's like there's nothing wrong with Boeing, though if we're listening now about what's happening to various aircraft, uh, maybe we'd have a different opinion. But isn't it nice that SpaceX came and started building rockets? Even for military purposes, will SpaceX build better rockets 10 years from now than whoever the contractor is for making America's ICBMs? And that's like a, you know, it's a civilian company, but it'll probably start beating the defense companies fairly soon on technological fundamentals. Possibly we should retire large defense conglomerates. Possibly we should be saying to Boeing, hey, for the next 20 years, you get to build defense tech. And after that, I'm sorry, you're not allowed to build defense tech. You're going to have to commercialize your technology of today. Think of how crazy that world would be. It would be a more advanced world, I'm sure. What about Social Security? Social Security has um, a significant... Here's the thing. I think that the UBI advocates, so universal basic income advocates, are correct in that we spend a lot of money and a lot of labor to stop individuals we think of as undeserving uh, to receive government benefits. People who want to game the system receive government benefits anyway, and this raises the barrier for a lot of people to receive services and funds. It's also true, again, that if you give people money and don't tell them what to spend it on, you know, they'll generally spend it on what they want to spend it on. What the advocates of UBI never managed to explain is how exactly are you going to make UBI as politically powerful as full-time government workers administrating projects that end up being pricier than UBI, right? They posit a moment after what's essentially a political revolution that transforms the um, essentially social democratic political economy that all Western countries, including the United States, are running into something quite different. And further, there is a way in which advocating for a universal benefit might be a much stronger argument for taxation than what we have currently. The advocates of UBI imagine a much lower budget where you accomplish stuff that, you know, all the things we think of as social security as providing, but much more cheaply. But who anywhere would argue against increasing a direct transfer to all citizens? Right now, I think there is a way in which uh, in the U.S. the dysfunctionality of government is also politically useful. You can scapegoat the bureaucrat. So even when the bureaucrat is quite efficient, as in DARPA, politically it still works well enough for votes to rail against the bureaucrat. But as soon as you have something like a direct transfer, you have an angry citizen being like, you know, saying, uh, you know, get the government's hands off my Medicaid, something that I think 
you know, the Democrats rightly made fun of. But uh, I think with UBI, you know, it's, it is yet to be demonstrated that you can have UBI without a very rapid race to the bottom of redistribution. So those are the two problems. First off, if it's more efficient, where is political power coming from? Secondly, once you've defeated the entrenched civil servants, what prevents a, ra a race to the bottom uh, and that eventually breaks the economy? Yeah, not, not to mention open borders, um, you know. <laughs> yeah. Of course, like, you know, if you have UBI, you're going to have to have a tough border policy. Yeah, exactly. How are you going to ideologically justify that? That's an interesting question, right? How about the regulatory capture side of things? Where, where, where companies get so powerful that they can lobby and make, you know, add more regulations that make it difficult for other people to compete. Talk, talk more about how, how could we fix or um, mitigate the negatives of regulatory capture? I, again, think that having permanent timeout for contracts might be a good idea. It might be like, hey, congratulations, defense company. You get to do this. And for a large country like the United States, there is no serious problem with having multiple companies be able to produce the same thing for smaller countries like say israel singapore honestly even medium-sized countries like britain or france your economy might only be big enough for one or two contractors that can build an aircraft carrier or they can build 500 planes in the u.s i think we can uh, achieve something by intentionally cultivating new companies. This way you might artificially induce some of the benefits of creative destruction. Um, the Schumpeterian Gale where, you know, there's a company that uses new technologies and on your neutral metrics performs better uh, than the incumbent company. And then more of the government contracts can shift to that company. Um, that's one, that's one thing that I do think has been actually done in the case of NASA. Now, NASA is not defense, but I do think when people talk up the achievements of SpaceX, they should rather also talk up the achievements of how, uh, of NASA spending since NASA spending incubated SpaceX. And it was a political achievement to have an agency give it to a new unproven company rather than the company they'd always worked with, right? Um, and, you know, because of that, the U.S. is launching more tons of stuff into orbit than any other country around the world. It's utterly blown uh, Russia's uh, competitiveness in the international satellite launch market. Had it only been Boeing and the United Launch Alliance, they would have never done that. So, you know, intentionally funding the creation of new companies that have nothing to do with the old establishment companies, that's a good idea. So even though that's a spend more money, it's a kind of spend more money to get a new replacement that undercuts the previous government contractor. I think that could work very well in the U.S. context because it's it's big enough. Another possibility, I think, also is this almost the creation of a government task force that would audit which companies are inefficient and then be allowed to spend money to try to fund their replacement to demonstrate it. So I'm imagining, uh, you know, a group of technologists goes, looks at, looks at the F-35, and they're like, well, we can actually replicate half of these functions, and then spends their year's budget of $50 million on just 
a new piece of technology or on a new provider that demonstrates that they can make a similar, uh, similar machine much more cheaply. So these are somewhat engineer based fixes. I admit there are clever things you could do with incentives, but I think those would require a bit more time to sketch out. The maybe gearing towards closing here, it's, it's worth just noting that even, uh, most conscious Democrats, people like, uh, Ezra Klein, uh, Matt Iglesias, Noah Smith have, uh, all of whom uh, are, are, are friends of mine who have coalesced around this idea that government is not working. Even the biggest defenders of, of government are saying, Hey, it's not working the way it should be. You know, Ezra Klein has this great New York Times piece, everything bagel liberalism, where uh, the left is just asking for too many things and uh, putting too many regulations such that, you know, on issues that that everyone should care about, like uh, housing, healthcare, and education, uh, the government is just not working effectively. And so um, when both parties are agreeing, even the party of big government, it's, uh, it's, it's just worth noting that, uh, you know, this bipartisan support for, for being more uh, effective and efficient. And then the real question is, will there, will there be alignment on or the courage, you know, uh, necessary to do what needs to be done? I think that grounding it in the perspective of state capacity has some things to recommend it where the debate of what government is already doing and can it do it? Uh, I think that is where the debate should center. Totally. That seems like a good place to, to, to wrap unless there's anything you want to you wanna close on. No, I think that's good. Thanks for listening to Live Players. Please subscribe, leave a review, and check out Samo's excellent newsletter, The Bismarck Brief, for more rigorous analysis of key individuals, institutions, or industries. Live Players is a production of Turpentine, the podcast network behind Econ 102 with Noah Smith and Moment of Zen. Hey everyone, Eric here. At Turpentine, we're building the first media outlet for tech people by tech people. We're the network behind the show you're listening to right now. We have a slate of hit shows across a range of topics and industries, from our AI and investing cluster of podcasts, to shows that drive the conversation in tech with the most interesting thinkers, founders, investors, and influencers, like Econ 102 with Noah Smith. We're launching new shows every week, and we're looking for industry-leading sponsors. If you think that might be you and your company, email me at erikaturpentine.co. That's E-R-I-K at turpentine.co, and let's partner together. 